0: Hey sports fans, now hi guys, how's everything going? Hope, hope you're having a great weekend. My weekend's been great so far. I'm just looking at some stuff, make sure we're in the right bloody chapter. Yes, okay. If people a little while to come in, my name is Charlotte, I'm going to be your host for the next hour, and, uh, next hour or so, and I'm going to be reading from Haunted Heirlooms by Anna Maria Manalo, one of my favorite authors, very nice lady, very, very nice lady, excellent writer too. Just give you a heads up is that the book itself is on a PDF, so I'm reading it off the computer screen. So what that means is that you're going to see me reading. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to sit here and watch me (laughs) literally read, okay? You can do whatever you want, have dinner or whatever while I am reading. Um, Because that's what I'll be doing, and I can't participate in the chat room because I'll be over on the page reading, okay? But I'll still be on camera to get this out to you guys. Alright? but my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, and that means we can get to you and help you out if you have any paranormal needs or anything like that. Just give us a, just give us a Give us a ring. My phone number is somewhere out there, but you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts under my name, that kind of thing. You can find us on Instagram under Ghosty Gal. You can find us on. Uh, TikTok under California Haunts, all lowercase. You can find us on Twitter under Cal Haunts. So there's a few ways to find us. But anyway, this book's been really entertaining. We're in Chapter 41 right now. And uh, like I said, I won't be able to answer chats or anything like that because it is a PDF. It's not like I'm reading off my tablet like I usually do. Uh, Hopefully the next one will be on my tablet. Uh, So I'll be focusing on the PDF itself. Also, when I'm reading, the spotlight drives me insane. So I'm going to go dark not really super dark but i mean i'll have like a blue hue almost because i'm gonna i'm not gonna use the spotlight while i'm reading okay i just give you guys a heads up on this and like i said i will be reading so you'll just see me reading off the thing so if you you know get bored watching my face which is kind of frightening you know you can go eat your dinner you can you know clean your house do whatever while i'm reading okay um if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you see, please be sure to hit that follow button. We're looking—I'm always looking for followers. Try to get the word out about this show. I mean, this is the first show of the week, and this is kind of more laid back. And then we start with our regular guest spots all the way through Friday, okay? But uh, yeah, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you happen to be watching from YouTube. Please hit the subscribe button so that we can get more subscribers. You know, we're looking to build that up as well. We're around 458 subscribers, I think, something like that, or 59 as of today. So I'm looking to build that up. I'm going to hit that thousand milestone. All right. Okay. So uh, give a couple more minutes for people to come in the chat room, or get more people to come in, and then I'm going to start reading. Where we left off was these people um, had been. Antiquers anyway and they owned a small shop and they decided to expand to a bigger shop. And this is this is somewhere over, you know, on the on the east coast. And they decided to buy to to open a bigger shop, so they moved over to this bigger shop. But they also took up some items with them and some newer item newer newer older items with them that they put in this shop. And now they're starting to hear reports of things going on when they're not there. Because there's like a cafe across the street that's open till like 11 or 12 at night, and there's also like people that live above the cafe, and there's security guards and everything, and the security guards are starting to see stuff, like lights on, like that lights on the second and third floors when no one's there, okay? But the people that work there themselves, there's one girl that's a manager that works there, and she's seeing stuff. Well, she's experiencing smells and noises and all kinds of stuff. So at the point we're at in Chapter 41 now, the owners are starting to realize there's something weird going on in this place. So they're starting to investigate more and look into it. And that's where we're at. So we're not, I don't know if we're going to finish the book tonight. We'll see what happens. Um, behind this book, I don't know what we're going to read, but uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe we, maybe we can read it. Anna, Anna's other book. She's got another book available. So I'll see if I can get permission for that one. But uh, one more minute here. We'll let people get in and just hang in there. Everybody, don't get discouraged because I haven't started yet. I am going to start, and like I said, I'm going to go dark, what I call going dark, which means no spotlight. If anybody that has contacts and has one contacts understands the no spotlight rule, because you do get glaring spotlights, you know, lights do glare, especially when you're driving and stuff, and I have the same issues with the spotlights on, and I'm trying to read off a PDF, especially when I'm reading the screen. And I have like a, <laughs> I have an 18-inch laptop screen in front of me. So, I mean, it's not like it's a tiny little laptop screen. Okay, here we go, and uh, let's hope I get through this. Hello, Karen, how you doing? Karen Clark's in the house, Pamela's in the house, Marisa, I know, is going to be in the house. Okay, again, for the people just coming in, just remember I won't be able to answer any comments or anything like that because I am reading off a PDF from an email. So I'm going to be on a totally different page, even though we'll be rolling with this, okay? All right, now, when I say I'm going dark, this is what it's going to look like. See that? I'm going dark. And then here we go. After I left, chapter 41. After I left, Meg spent the better part of an hour helping answer some questions from customers. Let me make this a little bigger for me, because I'm a blind bat. Yeah, I admit it. You know, when you can admit that you're blind, then, then you've arrived in life. Okay. We good. We good now. Hopefully it doesn't do anything weird. Okay, after I left, Meg spent the better part of an hour helping answer some questions from customers. A few purchases were made, and she was alone again by half past six when the last customer left. Meg dusted and placed some pieces where there were some new spaces where some artwork and porcelain had been bought. She then heard music coming from somewhere and found it soothing. Meg went back to the counter, sat on the stool, and began checking receipts against the register. The music was unusual, she remarked, and seemed like a harpsichord or something similar. Then the music stopped, and there was a crash. Meg shot up from her seat. It came from the back room, the furniture room. She emerged and bolted for the back room. Her steps creaked the aged floorboards as her heart pounded, concerned something had broken. Perhaps one of the customers had picked up a piece of porcelain and set it on the edge of a table where it fell. But in retrospect, she had dusted and found everything in its place after the last customer left. If anything if anything crashed, it wasn't in the porcelain room. She checked anyway. Meg walked into the China area, where all the Ladro and other figurines were kept, inspecting them. She saw nothing amiss. She paused at the shelves of China, the Amari plates and cups and saucers, nothing. She looked at the British china and noted all was as as she had left it just a few minutes ago after the customers had left. Finally, with reluctance, she slowly made her way to the back room. She entered the furniture room and stopped. Ahead of her, the chest stood at the window, which had darkened with the twilight. Next to one of the vases, the full-length mirror that Charlie had placed and secured with a rope to better anchor it, sat where he had left it, but the mirror had a million webs of glass. It was broken. Meg saw her reflection broken into a myriad of pieces. She looked behind her and up at the ceiling, but there was nothing that could have fallen on the glass. Then she smelled the unmistakable scent of burning matches, and then the foul stench of burning flesh. She touched the glass and saw that the pieces of mirror were scattered on the wooden floor. She picked up one shard, then another, collecting them and placing them on the windowsill. And that's when she saw it. She gasped. A man in profile, and shadow outside. He stood to the side of the window, close to the glass. Cigarette smoke wafted through the closed window and towards her. It was where the scent of lit matches came from. Cigarette smoke. In her mind, Meg recollected, hovering just inches from fright, was a feeling of despair and menace. Glued to the spot, she looked directly at the shadow, which appeared stationary. A sense of foreboding and loss assailed her. Chills went up her spine and down her back. The music came on again. It was in the room. The music was behind her. She turned. No Victrola, no radio. It was in the room somewhere. Then she turned back towards the window. The stench came back with force, almost making her, almost making her, okay, (laughs) okay, almost making her Virginia's. sorry. Um, Time seemed to pause. Then the shadow slowly vanished right before her eyes into the night. Meg heard a keening sound; it was coming from her own throat. Meg then bolted from the room. Chapter Forty Two. Let me put this up just a little more. Jox placed the phone back in his cradle, thinking. He rejoined us at the little breakfast table off the kitchen, off off the kitchen, sitting next to Meg. And studying her as she sipped her tea. Outside, the dark backyard, lay in wait for spring to thaw the cold air. But the chill was within us. Meg was still shivering from her retelling. I could tell she didn't want to think about returning alone the next day. I poured more tea for myself and sat quietly, a pregnant pause in the air. The police are going to send a patrol car starting tomorrow evening to check out the alley. They have someone assigned to stop and check the area at night, he offered. I'm telling you, I didn't think it was a burglar, said Meg. Jacques studied Meg. You're thinking the place is haunted. Yes. Anything could have broken the glass. I leaned forward. Jacques, think for a minute. She's... The mirror probably had a fracture that we didn't see. Charlie would have seen it. I surely would have seen it too, I said. Meg looked away. I felt bad for Meg. I have to agree with Meg. Too many incidents that don't sum up. Who was that man Meg saw in the photo? And who was, who was the one outside the window? The cafe owner saw him too. Meg, do you think it's the same man in your picture? Jacques was trying to piece things together to see who or how many burglars. Meg pulled out her cell and looked. She showed the picture to Jacques. I looked over my husband's shoulder. Is it? I don't know. How do you not know? He turned to Meg. I glanced at Jacques, who had raised his voice. The one in the window was a shadow. A shadow? Yes. So what does that mean? I can't see if it's the same man. He was sort of in profile. Was he the same build, height, hair, what? I don't know. I wish I could. He's casing our store. Is that what you think? I ventured. Jacques shook his head in frustration. I don't know. Hun. why don't we ask the cafe, gentlemen? They saw a man in a gray suit, remember? I had to offer this to palliate the two. The tension was palpable. It was getting to Jacques. To Jacques. Yeah, let's. Let's let's go now and ask, he said. I checked my watch. It's close to ten. I can call first, Meg offered. How are we going to explain this to Charlie? Jacques announced to, to the room, frustrated. Chapter 43. Let me take this thing off. Somebody just popped up. Moisture made the pavement, glim- the pavement glimmer, and lent an aura that made the building more, more sinister. We parked right in front, as we were perhaps the only two people on the street. I glanced over at the café, and the dark windows stared back at me like an intruder. There were no signs of anyone in the apartments above the café. If there were, they were most likely retired for the night, or some were preparing for bed. We would just have to sit tight until the next day to determine what Jake and Paul had seen. And perhaps if it was the same man, identify him. But why and how could anyone break in with a bolt and an alarm, break a mirror and not take anything? It didn't make sense. And the more I pondered it, the more I felt Meg had seen a ghost. Jacques, forever, preg- forever a pragmatist and not one who believed in ghosts, needed proof. I hoped we could see. I hoped we could see cross to the apartment building above the cafe, to see if we could talk to Jeff. The maintenance man on the night shift. After the alarm was disarmed, Jacques entered and quickly turned on the lights and made directly for the back room. I followed, wishing we had more people with us. The store felt like a tomb. The coal sitting in as the thermostat was turned down. The debris, save for a few shards, was where had left it. I walked in and immediately smelled lavender in the impossibly dark and drafty room. The scent was pronounced and cloying. Then the music came softly, but unmistakable. You hear that, I asked? Hear what? Listen. Jacques paused as he reached for a dustpan in a back closet. I don't hear anything, but I do smell something burning. Jacques proceeded to sweep the jagged edges and debris from the broken mirror. Only the frame was salvageable the antique 18th century dressing mirror. I can't believe you can't hear that. Jacques reached for a black trash bag and poured the shards of glass from the dustpan. Look for something burning. I can smell that. I surveyed the room. Then up to the adjacent room where the vases, pots, and items such as the Blanc de Chine statue stood. I proceeded next to the porcelain and fine china area. It was so quiet back there at the end. The music, or the scent, was present in that room even though there was no door to separate it from the furniture room the overpowering smell issued i'm sorry i wasn't present my bad as if some invisible door drowned out the melody and the odor of matches i looked up at the surrounding cabinets where the statues of saints made from alabaster and porcelain there were statues of saints made from alabaster and porcelain i felt comforted by them as they glanced back at me in serenity then i knew felt in my heart what might, have de- what might have deterred the scent and the music from entering that room? Perhaps, I thought. Just perhaps. I returned to the furniture room where Jacques had just finished clearing the debris. Let me make this a little bigger. See, I tell you I'm blind. There we go. And had tied the black trash bag shut. He glanced back at me as I entered, puzzled. I hear it now. Harpsichord music. It's coming from somewhere in this room. I knew we had no radio. I'm to choose the right audio apps for you. Oh my it's god, to I'm so sorry. This. this wasn't supposed to happen. Hang on. Huh. I think I got a ghost in here. That's kind of creepy. That shouldn't have happened. Okay, finished clearing the debris and had tied the black trash bag shut. He glanced back at me as I entered, puzzled. I hear it now. Siri, now I'm kidding. Harpsichord music. It's coming from somewhere in the room. I knew we had no radio, Victor or any sort of musical instrument. No candles, no matches, nothing lit anywhere, I reported. I smelled my clothing. I wasn't wearing any perfume. Then I saw Jacques looking out the window. Jacques? He was unmoving, transfixed. He lifted one finger and placed it over his lips. I approached the window, stood next to him, and looked out into the alley. Do you see it, he whispered. I strained to see, but only saw a brick wall which stood a few yards away. To the right, by the parking lot, I turned my head. Right there on the pavement, I focused my eyes. Then I saw. Jacques looked at me as I must, as I must have gasped. He looked back, and it was still there—a man in shadow, standing unmoving. Whoever it was appeared to be smoking, or was that smoke? The sole streetlight didn't seem to penetrate it; it remained undefined, gray, and a shadow with a, without a face. Then it appeared that it appeared to ever since into smoke. Jacques grabbed my arm, and we observed it slowly vanish. Silence. Jacques appeared rooted to the ground. Then, tentatively, he reached up and banged at the window pane as if to rouse the apparition that had vanished. A deep silence penetrated our consciousness. Then a light issued from our left. I jumped. A uniformed cop was shining a beam of flashlight through the alley and approaching towards the window. Jacques exhaled, and I relaxed. We nodded as the police officer shined his flashlight towards us in surprise. I had been holding my breath. Chapter 44 Jacques waved at the cop to wait. He dashed out of the room and I followed. Outside, the policeman shut off his flashlight and tipped his hat in greeting. Good evening, sir. Ma'am. Did you see that? Jacques sounded piqued. The cop paused and shook his head. See what, sir? There was a man. Jacques stopped. Dear, I touched him on the shoulder. The policeman the policeman obviously didn't see anyone and probably wouldn't believe us. I didn't see anyone back there, but I can check. The cop walked back down the alley towards the back of the building. We followed. Of course, the alley and the parking lot were completely deserted. Jacques turned at me, nodded, and thanked the police officer who continued on foot towards the warehouse. Let's go home. In the SUV, Jacques drove and then stopped at a gas station. When he restarted the vehicle, he had he had looked at bordered on fright, very rare for my husband. Let's see how things go. I don't want to alarm Meg, so please don't tell her we saw what she had seen. But Jacques, please, let's discuss a plan. Chapter forty-five. Guys, Meg ran and told us she was ill. A migraine, she said. For now, it spared us having to lie about what we'd experienced the night before. I instantly understood my loyal manager of 24 years. She practically grew up in the office and had never taken a sick day until today. As soon as we entered the shop that morning, we walked to the cafe together and checked with Paul and Jake about what they had seen. Other than the man by the front door, nothing else so far. We held off telling them what had happened the night before. None of us had any history on the building or that particular store, and we needed someone who had lived there for a long time. Jake and Paul were also in the area, having moved from neighboring New Hampshire, where they had been students. Paul, reto- Paul, Paul retold us what the maintenance man had seen and heard. Megan shared the photo she took at the front door. I showed the photo to Paul. It was a dead ringer for the man in gray that they had seen. Collectively, the accounts... Including what had been encountered the previous night, told us what we were expecting. Something otherworldly, it seemed. Logic seeks explanations. Okay, this a bit. cam's razor always points to facts without assumptions. Meg and I both assumed we were dealing with a haunted store, or at least a room, the furniture room in the rear. At this point, even Jacques was veering away from logic to the illogical and bizarre. It was too foreign to us. We needed answers, and we were now on edge. Jacques called Ken, our landlord, and we agreed to meet about the story and its history. We needed to know what he knew, and what else could possibly happen, as we couldn't risk another precious antique being destroyed by what appeared to be a poltergeist of sorts. Hang on, guys. Okay. There were enough signs, but we never experienced anything akin it. I, for one, didn't want to experience any more strange and frightening occurrences, and I knew Jacques didn't want customers or vendors to begin avoiding our establishment, which we nurtured for years. We also were concerned we would lose Meg if the encounters with the strange man continued. Ken walked into the store, appearing uncomfortable. I approached the front door, locked it, and turned the sign to close. It was the first time that I can recall that when we closed unexpectedly. We assembled behind the counter, and Ken put down a disposable tray from the cafe with coffees, creamers, and some scouts. I felt he had anticipated some issues and wanted to keep the relationship amicable. We were not the sort to argue, but since we were his new tenants, he would not know. Ken self-consciously touched the si- touched his sideburns, which reminded me of Bert Reynolds. He cleared his throat as he offered the co- as he offered the coffee, Jacques, not one to pass on sweets and pastries, grabbed a coffee and a scone, intent on making a lunch of them. I sipped. There's never been a problem up to now, but there's always a first time, as they say, Ken said diplomatically. Jacques looked up in the act of adding sugar to his coffee. Any incidents of kids in the past in the area partying or playing pranks? Not that I'm aware of. I lived around here for quite some time. Grew up nearby. Do you remember how it's, how this started? I went through Meg's first experience with the sense, then the man peering out at the front door. The maintenance man's story, and ended with what Jacques and I had seen. Ken kept nodding, musing, and noncommittal, until I told him about the broken mirror in the back room by the window, which had happened while Meg was alone. May I see it? Ken surveyed the room, the floorboards, touching the furniture and glancing out the window. He shrugged. Anything else broken since then? I looked over at Jacques. No, I hope not. We had to file for insurance to reimburse Charlie. It was in mint condition, you see, Jacques said. I understand. Anything missing? I shook my head. Ken continued to study the room like he had never seen it before. The police were here? Last night, I qualified. They were planning on patrolling on a regular... Yes, I hope so, Jacques said. He... Ken looked away. We waited. Ken? Before you both made this into a store, it was a warehouse for linens for several years. Before that, a supply store for camping supplies, I think. A bunch of young men and outdoorsy types used to come here. Ken approached the trunk right out of the window. They used to have fishing poles leaning against these walls, and there was all kinds of sports equipment, even boxes of tents. He nudged the trunk with his foot. Solid, heavy. There was one time when a bunch came to get outfitted for some kind of climbing expedition. Interesting, said Jacques. Then a man, a hobo of sorts, broke in. I think he was trying to steal a tent. He lorded around here and shocks? Yes. About ten to twelve years ago when the sports outfitter was here. He was homeless, I guess. Was he caught? Yes. But he was released and started laughing out back here again. Oh started t- <laughs> hanging, I'm sorry. Started hanging out here back out back again. In this alley, that parking lot. So what did the outfitter do? That's when I installed the alarm, then the CCTV. This was news to us. There's a CCTV, Jox asked. There is, but it hasn't been serviced. The circuits outside were damaged, and so was the camera. Damaged by what? Ken pointedly looked at us. A fire. I thought of what the maintenance man had said about a glow or a light behind our store. I warmed to the theme. When was this fire? Around the time after the hobo stole the tent. Jocks waited. Ken continued. The hobo was apparently hanging out in the alley, was inebriated as as usual. And? What I heard was that he was smoking and it was dark and cold. He was wrapped in a blanket as the tent had been returned to the outfitter. The alcohol bottle he had with him accidentally set the blanket on fire. He had lit, he had lit a jar on fire of some sort to keep himself warm, as some of them do. I stood, placing my hand on the sill for support, looking out into the gloom that was the alley. I tapped the window, this alley outside this window, yes, just a few yards in that parking lot. That window pane is new, and the bricks outside. Jacques stepped in. you remember how he looked? I never met him, but he was an older man, slim with a hat, almost too distinguished to be homeless. Ken looked away. He seemed dis- he seemed discomfited, but didn't continue. Is he still around, you think? I prodded. No, Ken said. He looked at his watch as if he had another engagement. He drank the rest of the coffee and looked at us both, almost as if he was waiting. Perhaps he—perhaps he's still hanging back there in the lot, I ventured. The fire destroyed this wall, this window. He was trying to roll against the wall to extinguish. Oh my, I gasped. Yes, Ken said, the ambulance came. And he recovered and is now back to this old haunt? Jacques finished? Ken gazed at me, his blue eyes flicked. No, Jacques, the ambulance came too late. He died of his burns. Chapter 46 I need to ask you if you are willing to give me another couple of weeks. The police are now making this area part of their nightly patrol, as you said. Lights back there and in this room might help, if you know what I mean. Jacques glanced at me. We both knew we had a lease and how it was very difficult to move all the precious items. We'll stay. Unless. Unless? I replied this time, unless some activity causes another piece of antique to be damaged. They're they're expensive and can't be replaced. I understand. We need to be up front with our manager. This I said to Jacques. Ken strode out of the room and surveyed the rest of the store. Then he turned and came back. He prodded the trunk again with his foot. Just curious, what's in this trunk, please? The Chester trunk was heavy. Solid walnut. It had a bolt of brass. I'll get the key, Jacques offered. I walked to the front counter with him, feeling a sudden drop down in the temperature of the room as we left. The knowledge of the violent death just hit home. Ken followed right behind. I sensed he wasn't keen to stay behind in that room either. Jacques searched in a drawer with Ken by his elbow to look for the key. I went to the back of the counter to tend to a few customers who'd just arrived. I felt the need to compose myself with the daily routine of meeting and selling to customers who knew nothing of the odd occurrences. A few minutes later, Jacques returned to the trunk with Ken and and an ancient key in hand. I followed. The hasp was open, and the bolt had been carelessly tossed to the floor. The trunk with its heavy lid was wide open. I darted over, peering in. Jacques and Ken stood stood on either side. Inside the large chest were bottles of wine, lying on their sides in a bed of felt. I took one out, and there were more underneath. We began taking them all out, about three dozen in all, in all of what was very expensive wine from Spain. They were collectively over a hundred years old. Then, as we held the vintage bottles with their contents intact and corked, I smelled the lavender again. That fineness, that softness, that cleanliness. Jacques thought out loud that someone, that somehow the man who tragically extinguished his own life by accidentally setting himself on fire, must have been sending us a message. I was stunned by this insight from my pragmatic and 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 realist husband. It reminded me of Esteban, my lover of old. And as we listened to Jacques share his random thoughts out loud, the lavender diminished, and the scent of sulfur, of what what we knew was a burning, took over. Then the stench left me gagging, now realizing what had transpired. Even in the light of the late afternoon, there was a loneliness a despair I could taste like sour fruit, and a drop in temperature in the room. That depth of sadness as a memory never left me. I know that Jacques had trouble sleeping that night, and the nights to follow. I contemplated leaving and how Meg would react if the haunting and poltergeist activity continued. I thought she was strong enough, but she wasn't. It was too bizarre for me, who existed in the land of the living, as we did. I mean, sorry, I apologize. It was too bizarre for Meg, who existed in the land of the living as we did. A glimpse of the profound sadness of the destitute of a destitute man, given to drink and hopelessly living on the verge, made us more grateful for what we had. However, it left us empty and saddened, as if mourning the aftermath of war. We auctioned the wine as part of a collection we found in the chest from Spain. When it was over, we pulled all the furniture out of the back room, and Ken helped us rearrange the furniture. To fit into an area that we had cleared after a series of sales. It took time. Meg would not attend the store alone, kept to herself and became quiet almost reticent. We limited hours unless all three of us were there at the store. Meg gave notice at the other two seasons, brave as she was to stay on for that long, as there was more activity, broken porcelain, unexpected items being moved, and so on. Then she saw him again. Peering through the back window, gaunt and foreboding, right before the trunk or chest that had contained the wine was finally sold. The removal of the chest appeared to signal the end of the terrifying sightings of the man, the music that heralded his appearance, and the scent of sulfur. However, we had seen enough. Jacques and I retired a few weeks after that sighting and moved out to Vermont and back to Europe, where we sold the rest of the antiques by consignment, and a new tenant changed the name of the shop. This, that is my story. Part 4, The Barrister's Bookcase. I think it's part 5. Roman numerals suck. The Barrister's Bookcase. (laughs) I'm just a little old journalist, you guys. Chapter 47, George. (laughs) Newport, Rhode Island. The name conjures the grand old mansions, 11 of them, a testament to the gilded age of bygone America. The seven that are open to the public, coined the Seven Sisters, parallel the seven colleges for women, proud, austere, and respected. Their opulence brimmed with forgotten grandeur, standing unsurpassed in building materials and craftsmanship outside of Europe. They symbolized generational success, their facades braving the torn winds of, of, of of the tumultuous Atlantic, a punctuation mark at the edge of New England. The finger of Newport Reached down to the Atlantic as if seeking to recline and further luxuriate with the eyes with eyes to the sea, but that ear is gone. Farther inland, the tendrils of Rhode Island, in the form of Providence, sat in gentility with Rhode Island School of Design within the northern reaches of the city, and on its southwest flank was Brown University, securing Rhode Island as an Ivy League state on the on the map. Please call me George. I am an antique. I, ha- I had an antique shop. A brisk T- a brisk t- <clears throat> I'm sorry. I had an antique shop a brisk, a brisk ten-minute walk from the campus of Brown. My shop held in its palm the remains of the opulence that we cleared from some sort of the eleven mansions, which ones I am not at liberty to tell you, lest I mar the line of respected descendants of such esteemed families. Suffice it to say, we procure these fine and rare heirlooms by default at fairs and estate closings, and some by consignment. For most of us dealers, it was our claim to fame to hold and sell the unique, rare, and artisan objects and furniture that once graced the abode of the highly refined of Newport's history. In this gem of New England, sandwiched between Connecticut and Massachusetts, life swung to and fro in gentle breezes in gentle breezes and waves. The sorceres of students adrift among the local populace made for lively made for lively evenings as they shared in, in Intellectual joy de Vere I hope I said it right among them, the wings a petrol flap and dip onto and between the rooftops. the rare forage inland hailing comorants who mate in their roofs. The cormorants rustle and fling themselves along the shoreline as they breed, awakening locals and tourists alike before the sound of grinding coffee beans. You can hear the call of the loon and hear you can, where am I okay, you can hear the call of the loon. And hear the screech of pebbles, the scree of pebbles, as birds seek purchase on the loose sad promontories nearby. When you stand outside my shop, sometimes the salt water stings your eyes. We were that close to the water. However, that glimpse of coastal paradise is somnolence. by evening was disrupted when we encountered a particular bookcase. It came in a truck, as most of the large furniture did. When Eileen and I eyed the furniture that, that made their way by truck, the unloading was often treacherous, as was the voyage to get to the store. When furniture was well made, crafted, and rare made, made its way to the streets of Providence, there were often some bumps along the way, mostly from evading traffic and driving on an uneven road. On a busy work day, it is often a risk we take, often a scratch or a dent on the oak or mahogany made the piece of art less desirable. This was the case with the barrister's bookcase that came into our possession and was sold in short order to a woman who unfortunately got to know, not because of lack of character or conduct, but what occurred since the woman procured the object of desire. Jean was an art collector of antique and antiques aficionado. She frequented our shop and the shops that marred the landscape of Providence. Her license plate showed she was from out of state in neighboring Connecticut, which for us was not a far drive for the young and vigorous. I surmised, and so did Eileen, my wife of 21 years, that Jean was an acquaintance of my older son Trey, as that was how we got to meet her. Trey was in college at the time in Connecticut and had just moved to a Victorian house in the next town from his university. Soon we discovered Jean was the landlady of the Victorian house Trey was renting with two other undergraduates. Trey frequently drove home from college to help us with the store during weekends, particularly when tourism was at its height, and he conveniently was off from university. It was during one of these visits, one of his visits, when he introduced us to Jean, who had already been in the shop a few times on her own several months before, to peruse and enjoy our antiques. Of course, I recognized her, as I have quite a memory for faces. On this particular visit, Jean was out looking for a barrister's bookcase, which she intimated was a gift she wanted to bestow on to her best friend, who was the town librarian near where Trey lived. As Jean surveyed our collection of furniture, Trace shared with me that she had already visited several antique stores in Connecticut, looking for this type of bookcase to no avail. Knowing our incoming inventory that week, our son encouraged Jean to stop by our store for a visit before dining with a friend later in the evening. For anyone who might not be familiar with a a Barrister's bookcase, this bookcase is different from other bookcases in the presence of of a glass plane which usually flips shut over a shelf. Each shelf has its own glass cover, which opens by pulling up and revealing the books. It's quite unique, but also utilitarian, as books are kept from dust when the bookcase is made well. Books were a sign of education, and every volume was considered valuable in the days of the 17th and 18th centuries, and thus should be kept protected. They are not as common as they are usually made with fine craftsmanship and strong wood. To own books back in the days of the mansions was was a sign not just of education, but refinement. On our showroom floor, we happened to have four barristers' bookcases, one of which had ended up with a dent while in transport. As I previously mentioned, that was a risk. That particular bookcase was made of walnut, a hard and expensive wood. It was made in the 18th century, and I recall it came from one of the mansions in Newport, which was owned and passed down privately. Despite the dent on the edge of the bookcase, we were relieved the glass panes remained intact and unscratched. After a friendly introduction by our son, Eileen took Jean around the store, pointing out the art as well as the antiques. They chatted for a bit, and Eileen left her customer to browse at leisure. Eileen learned our customer was a collector of old books, Renaissance art, and figurines jean had only begun to browse the furniture when she returned to our area to ask about a a certain bookcase it happened to be the dented one made of walnut i've looked all over connecticut in the past few weeks jean indicated and i've never found one i liked until this let's look at it and open the shelves shall we i offered that would be wonderful i allowed jean to inspect the coveted piece in question after opening the shelves she seemed very interested and ran her slim fingers across the smooth surface. It's walnut, isn't it? I agreed. I strode to the side of the bookcase and, sh- and showed her the dent, which I had previously polished to remove the scratch as best I could. Where there were flaws, I always made a point to offer a discount, no matter how minor, as we honored quality and perfection. Oh, that's small. Yes, it happened while moving it. That's inconsequential, she, s- she smiled. Forty-eight, Chapter 48. Large purchases were always delivered, as it was our courtesy to the customers, provided they lived less than 50 miles from the store. Darien, Connecticut, happened to be more, as it was farther down the state towards New York. A week passed, then two. Meanwhile, I dusted and polished the bookcase, wiped the glass planes until they shone, preparing it to be viewed one last time by Jean, who paid me in cash. I thought it would... Ring her, I thought I would ring her to follow up on where she had made the arrangements for the bookcase to be picked up. On when, I'm sorry, on when she made the arrangements. Jean, sorry to bother you, but I just wanted to check on how things were going with the pickup. A pause. Yes, this must be the name of the store. It is, it's George White. It's ready. I can secure the glass and wrap it with with mover's cloth when you're ready. A mumble, then a cough. I'm sorry. Say again. I'm sick. Sorry. I caught a bad cold. Oh, I hope you feel better. Should I call at a different time? Coughing. It's all right. I will call the day to make the arrangements, Jean added. I won't wait for you to confirm the date and time. Get well soon, please. I've been sick since you saw me. I'm really sorry to hear it. Any possibility of Trey bringing it? Trey? Yes, he goes there often, correct? Yes, but you need a truck. Our driver only goes less than... Oh, yes, I remember. There will be an additional fee, should you... I'll pay for it. I pulled a calculator from the counter and and computed, giving her the figure. Mindful she was was Trey's landlady, I told her that I had subtracted a discount. Will Trey drive it over? Hold on, please. I surveyed the shop and found my wife, who was in the midst of a transaction at the other end of the store. I strode past the register, signaling her of my quick departure out of the store for a minute. I walked to the front door, looking for the driver, who had the truck idling at the curb, getting ready to leave. I waved at him. A portly man in his thirties, Steve, the driver, was paid by the hour to transport our rare and precious goods. He was careful and astute about making sure the furniture did not move or get tossed about while in transit. Are you willing to drive to Darien? Where is that? Connecticut, next door, tongue-in-cheek. Next door for sure. He reached for a box and opened a GPS. The first I've seen. Hmm, perhaps. Depends on when. That's over 100 miles, it looks, without traffic. I know, I will of course pay you extra. Hmm, not sure. He wasn't going to do it, but I didn't want Trey to take the risk when he'd never driven a truck with an antique in the back before. Knowing Trey, he was a fast driver, faster than we care to think about. If you will think about it, please, I asked. Eileen and I always took the train into Darien. Besides, the bookcase wouldn't fit in the SUV. I wrote down Steve's fee plus tip and handed it to him. He looked at it, eyes looking about as if we were discussing contraband and walked out. I'll think about it over dinner, Steve added as he unlocked the truck and stepped, up to the cab, stepped into the cab. I heard the truck's engine turn over and he pulled away. Then I ran back to the shop and picked up the phone again. I'm sorry to keep you on hold, Jean. Who are you talking to? I am contracting the drive. I, I am contracting the driver, but I can't promise transport at this point. Not to worry, I just saw Trey go into the house. I will ask him directly. No, please, um he's she hung up. Chapter forty nine. I marked his soul with a label and straightened and straightened up. The dust settling in the the, the dust settling in the room as I walked away. I did it. I did a cursory inspection of the other antiques and noted the statues from a few months ago had not moved. A cherubim cherubim, cherubim, with gold wings stared down at me, eyes of alabaster sightless. It was getting crowded with all sorts of lamps, hat-stands, mahogany, and inland tables, shaker chairs, not to mention the other bookcases and end tables. The walls were heavy with antique-framed paintings, prints, and wrought iron filigree, parts of sconces and more. I made a mental note to move the inventory around, perhaps to the other room by the entrance, to give them more visibility to the silverware. I paused to disregard a tissue or to discard a tissue on the floor, probably left by a departing customer. I heard a cough. Then someone cleared their throat. Behind me, I turned. No one was there. I glanced at my watch and saw a shadow hovering behind me as I looked down. I turned again. It was a trick of the light. I hastily walked out of the room, flicking the light switches off as I left, casting the room in darkness as I walked. For some reason, I felt I was being watched. As I approached the front door, I heard a hacking cough that made the hairs on, the, on on my back bristle. I knew there was no one in the room I had just left. I whirled and made for the switch just inside the adjoining door, but before my hands touched the light switch, I felt flesh brush up against my hand. Perturbed, I still reached... For the series of switches, flicking them on one by one. The lights did not come on. I felt flustered, uncomfortable. Not wanting to give in to flights of fancy, I flipped the switches off and on, to no avail. The darkness remained. I looked up at the fluorescence. Then I felt br- the breath by my cheek, like one exhausted and perhaps dismayed. I yelled Eileen's name, then realized she was outside the store at the curb, packing and bringing in the vintage trinkets, which we placed on a table to attract passer-by. That left only me in the store. I backed away, puzzled. It didn't register in my mind the possibility of a ghost or specter, but rather perhaps an intruder or prankster. I began calling out. Hello, we're closed for the evening. Silence. Hello? I flicked the lights on again, and this time the fluorescence flooded the room. Please come out, as we're closing. The alarms will be armed. Silence. I kept the lights on and darted for the register, making for a making for a bat I kept behind the counter. I grabbed the bat, prepared for what might come. Silence. Nothing came. Honey? I whirled around I whirled around. It was Eileen carrying a tray full of baubles and scarves. It's nothing. I thought I heard something. Chapter 50 rolling right along, guys. I can do it, Dad. It's not that, son. Dad, she's paying me. I need Steve's truck if he's not willing. You're not licensed to drive one. Okay, so I'll borrow a pickup. We don't need a truck for that anyway. I rolled my eyes, worried about Trey driving as he does. A speed demon on the turnpike was a rare antique. It wasn't even the antique that worried me as much as Trey getting into an accident, not used to driving a large vehicle. He also... Oh, he had a beetle. <laughs> he touched me on the arm. His brown hair thick like mine at his age. It's okay, Dad. I won't drive fast. I'm bringing Vicky along. Vicki, the new love interest from the university prep school, a very nice girl whom he tutored and worked hard to raise her grades. She was hoping to apply to Yale in the spring. I felt better, though I wondered if Jean, who was his landlady, had put the pressure on my son. I questioned it no further. As once Trey made up his mind, there was no changing it. Several customers were in the store, and I decided that Eileen needed a break. I stood at the register, prepared to assist anyone who was browsing, when I saw my wife walking out of the room where the bookcases sat. The room that left me with a strange vibe. She had a bag of trash in her hands. Still dusting? Dusting? Some of these customers don't pick up after themselves, Eileen indicated, a bit too loud in my estimation. I placed my finger on my lip to signal for her to lower her voice and waved one hand about to show there were customers scattered all over the store. My wife, all five feet two of her, with sparkling brown eyes, reacted impishly with a half grin. Sorry, she whispered. I reached for the plastic bag she had in her hand and wondered who was leaving trash in the store. Their tissues, disgusting. Against my own sense of propriety and hygiene keenness, I opened the bag and peered out of curiosity. Someone had a nosebleed, I qualified. She nodded. Tie it shut and wash your hands. It could be someone who had the flu or something. I discarded it outside in the curbside trash, which the town had upgraded to some type of attractive receptacle in the light, in light of the tourists. Then I paused, thinking. People with the flu don't usually get nosebleeds. Odd, I thought. I dove into the washroom, marked private and washed my elbows. I exited the washroom and joined Eileen, who was ready for lunch. We sat opening cans of Pepsi, sandwiches on the counter spread out, wondering what type of tourists were descending on the area. Do you think we should disinfect just in case? I just washed my hands. No, I mean the store. Where? Near the chinaware, I jibed. She chuckled. No, thank goodness. I found those tissues by the bookcases. Then it clicked. When I last walked in there, that was where I found tissues on the floor. The lights that wouldn't come on and the hand brushing against me. I told Eileen. We chewed, watched customers, and busied ourselves. My wife was baffled. Chapter 51. Trey jumped into the driver's side of the beige Toyota truck. His housemate Vince had just shut the tailgate to the truck and waved him off, still wearing his pajamas. Riding shotgun was a girl in her late teens with long blonde hair and a a ponytail, wearing a Yale sweatshirt and jeans. She appeared shy and wholesome in a way like Shirley Temple. Vicky, Don't do anything I wouldn't do with my truck, okay? Vince jibed, waving goodbye. You have my word, Trey reassured him, placing his hands together in prayer. He looked one last time in his rearview mirror for the pad and the mover's blanket which Jean had given him to take along just in case the store didn't have any to spare. They sat secure in the truck's bed pinned by luggage for the weekend stay. Trey arrived at the store around 2 p.m. just as a bunch of art students it was at our store. We invited the young couple to have a spot of lunch with us before heading to Socket for a weekend at a rental cabin. Trey thought that in light of the distance he would make a weekend out of it. Spending time off from studying and the store and returning on Sunday to pick up Jean's bookcase on the way back to Connecticut. Travel is usually, traffic is usually heavy on a Friday, and what usually took four hours took five. Both looked exhausted despite their youth and welcomed the large lunch we had ordered ahead. calzones from what I recall. Trey Trape stood with Vicky, who appeared too shy to hold his hand in front of his parents. She was very sweet. We sat down and began the customary niceties before unwrapping our lunches, when Eileen broached the subject of the garbage that the tourists were leaving behind. Just be sure to clean up and wash your hands. There's people coming to the store tossing used tissues. Eileen, please. I put my hand up to stop. I know, George. It's not lunch conversation. Okay. It's just that we keep the antiques clean. We do. And I don't trust anyone who's touching them with their dirty hands. Let's change the subject, Eileen. Kids at the store, Trey offered. Kids at the store, Trey offered. We don't know, but your father, Eileen, let's not get into it. He got spooked. Dad? Trey's interest was p- p- uh, Trey's interest was piqued. Sorry about that. I wasn't spooked. You exaggerate. I said defensive- defensively to my wife. You had a bat in your hand. Not a good mix of fine china, Dad, Trey chuckled. No shit. I thought there was someone hiding. Vicky turned all shades of pink. It was an argument reserved for a family behind closed doors. Hun, do you mind getting some paper napkins in the washroom, please? I forgot. This was Eileen politely requesting Vicky get some napkins. Vicki appeared relieved, smiled and got it from her chair. Chapter fifty two Trey watched us from across the tiny Cafe table we had gathered at, situated near the registers. As Vicky left for the washroom, two elderly ladies had walked in and were browsing and chatting quietly. You need any help, ladies? I ventured. One in a bouffant hairstyle turned and smiled. No, please, we're just looking right now. Just admiring the furniture. I turned back to catch Eileen appearing piqued. She whispered, Please don't argue with us when Vicky's here. I don't want her to get the wrong impression. "'I just don't want everyone to know about the incident, Eileen.' "'Dad, please tell me, now. You've got got me all curious.' "'Tell him, George.' Vicky returned and placed a bunch of disposable table napkins on the table near the tomato sauce. "'She bit into her calzone and, and munched, watching us. "'Dad?' "'I eyed the napkins Vicky had brought in from the washroom and realized that they were the same kind, "'that it had been discarded, carelessly on our floors.' A vision of hobos in New York City's Grand Central Station crossed my mind. Well, it was a few days ago when I was getting ready to close the store, I said, said, inspecting the napkins from the washroom. I was outside putting away the fake jewelry. I know, Eileen. I'm just saying you were alone. Yes, so I was. We were just about ready to close, and I went to look around for anything out of place. Clean up, dust, you get my drift. Vicky was nodding sensing something afoot. Trey's eyes were excited. we dust and put away anything out of place. Move some inventory to cover empty spots where someone has purchased something, explained Eileen to Vicky. Am I telling the story or are you? I was getting frustrated. You are. Go ahead. Go, Dad. I'd like to get to the cabin before dark. See, I thought there was a customer still browsing. You missed the good part, Eileen scolded. Okay. So I was dusting and picked up some dirty garbage off the floor. Tell them where where you saw the bookcase and and ornate lamps or whatever they're called these days. The lamps are Tiffany. They've always been called that, said Eileen. Vicky nodded, trying to follow the story, glancing over at Trey. He frowned and looked away flustered. We were bickering. I picked up the trash off the floor, and then as I switched off the lights, there was coughing right behind me. And you forgot someone was still in the shop? Trey asked. No one, according to your father, added Eileen. Vicky was taking it all in. Her eyes were round at this point. When I went to switch the lights back on, they wouldn't silence. Was that it, Dad? Yes. George, you told me. Eileen shot him a look. I was done. I wasn't going to mention what might be my imagination. I finished the calzone and stood up, gathered the paper plates. Eileen got the hint. I started cleaning up and then walked over to the two other customers who had entered the shop. A hand touched my shoulder. Mr. White? It was Vicky. Yes, dear. Did you see something? Pause. No, I felt a hand brush against my hand when I reached for the switch. Oh, Dad. I know what I felt. Vicky looked up at Trey. That's not like Dad, my son said with an earshot. And don't tell anyone else, you hear me? I knew I was getting testy, but it was a conservative town and I didn't want any rumors going around. Chapter fifty three Trey I parked the truck at an incline with the cabin to the left. Beyond it was a small pond with willow trees surrounded which surrounded the perimeter, very pastoral. What was that shot before your parents rented the spot? I don't know. I'm surprised Dad was that was that sensitive about it. He obviously had a lot in his mind, and the incident that he wasn't anticipating scared him more than he admitted. I brought our luggage into the small living area, glad to be away from school. Vicki had brought some schoolwork, but somehow I knew she was not in the mood as she had just completed a major project. At length, we went out to the local seafood place, sat outside to admire the sunset, and the topic came up. Vicki was into the paranormal, having grown up at Old Brook, Old Sabrook, where there were some old and lonely cemeteries nearby that were rave among local ghost hunters who were scoffed at and made fun of all the time. Vicky kept her beliefs to herself until my dazzle incident. I ventured to let her know about what had happened last semester when my friend Lucas and I lived on the beach near the campus. You sat at a seance? I did, and lived to tell about it. What happened? A classmate used a Ouija board. Vicky looked intrigued. Don't get any ideas. I'll never get near one again. No, I wouldn't on my grandmother's grave. We only did it, it did it as there was a wing chair with a spirit in it. I told her the entire story. The woman in the dorm, the nun who was hurt by some fountain as she was jogging, the way we tried to put it on the edge of the beach to get the tide to take it away. Where is it now? Lucas and I trashed it. Silence. I have a feeling, Vicky ventured. Vicky ventured. What kind of feeling? It's not the store, it's something they put in it. Silence. Like what? How long have your parents run this shop? Since I was little, third or second grade even. Did they ever have this kind of weird no. So it must be something new to the store. A new arrival. Yes. But which one? They get a lot. New consign new consignees, estate sales stuff. Estate sales stuff, new. When did he when did he feel that? The hand? Last week. What came in last week or the week before? chapter 54 That night, I slept fitfully, and then finally like a rock. I sensed Vicky get up. I sensed Vicky get up a few times to get water and then doze beside me. Then I had a dream that Dad was inside the shop and was wandering about, almost like he was lost and stressed. It wasn't like Dad. In the dream, he got sick and was violently coughing. He sounded like Jean, our landlady, when I had last talked to her, when she'd caught some type of bug. Whatever it was, it was not pleasant. Maybe something was raging. Possibly a virus making its rounds on the campuses, like it usually does. I felt guilty, as I, I knew how to get, how that got around with students in crowded dorms and cafeterias. Not to mention, auditoriums where the general intro classes were held, and we had just been at the store eating with them. The sunlight hit me like a, like a drunk at a sled, like a drunk at a slumber party. And Vicky was already outside reading by the edge of the pond. It was warm for an October morning, but I knew the weather was changing fast. I had something deep in my gut besides my hunger left over from the dream or nightmare last night about Dad and his getting sick. The arguing they'd been doing was not like them either. I was hungry from all the driving, but also had a feeling that bordered on dread for some reason. Maybe my parents were starting to get on each other's nerves after being married for so long. I tossed up the nightmare to all the activity we did like the pressure of Vicky meeting my parents for the first time though we were not ready for anything real serious yet particularly with me still in college and Vicky entering college in the fall which might be farther than Yale it might not have been the right time maybe maybe it was that and witnessing them bicker maybe it was that and witness and witnessing them bicker about the bizarre story I dressed and strode out walking with a light step and hope Vicky was as starved as I was for a big breakfast. By 930 ish, we had collectively tucked into, tucked into four eggs, ten pieces of bacon, and a huge stack of French toast. I told Vicky, I told Vicky, I told Vicky, <laughs> she ate like a man, and she laughed as she normally did, as she let a lot of things roll off her shoulders. Nothing much bothered her, as she was not inclined to take anything personally. I loved that about her. So, bags in hand, we were ready to rock and roll. I maneuvered Vince's truck in front of the store where Steve usually parked on the pickup days. Mom was already waiting and Daddy merged with another guy I didn't know, carrying what appeared to be the bookcase wrapped in a mover's blanket and secured with ropes. I pulled down the tailgate, and that was when I discovered we had forgotten Vicky's overnight bag. Hey, Dad, I gotta go back. Forgot something? Yeah, Vic. Your bag's not in the cab, is it? Vicky stepped off and looked dismayed. Nope, I need that. Got my term paper and notes for the exam in there. Let's load this, and then you can stop on your way home, Dad surmised. Just go across Route 44 on your way back. More scenic, Mom offered. The tailgate, up and secure. I looked at the covered hump that was the bookcase lying snugly next to my duffel bag and of blankets. Okay, guys, that's it. We're at chapter 55, I'm going to write this down, and that's it for today. Let me get my light back on, there I am, and poof, I'm all it up again. All right, we're at chapter 55, so we will continue next weekend, and I appreciate everybody coming to listen. I know it's Sunday, and everybody's got their stuff going on, we're all trying to shift into the holidays, you know, little by little, Halloween, Christmas coming up, Thanksgiving, so I appreciate everybody taking the time off to listen to the book. So I will be back next Sunday uh, to, do the, to, to continue to read. And I'm in the process of looking for another book once this one's finished so we can continue with this. But I want to thank you all. And if you, you, know, and if you like you know, what you heard today, and you're, like I said earlier, if you like what you heard today and you're listening on Facebook, Please uh, hit that follow button. Same thing with YouTube. Please hit that subscribe button because we do this every Sunday. It's kind of like a relaxed thing from the weekend. We do. And uh, we've been doing it what for about a year, huh, guys? A little over a year we've been doing this. And uh, go ahead and subscribe on YouTube. And, uh, you know, look us up on TikTok. Again, California haunts, all over Um And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. <laughs> We want to get the word out as much as possible, and I really appreciate each and every one of you. Tomorrow, we start back our regular pro- back to our regular programming, and that's going to be our old friend Jared Murphy's going to be stopping by, and he's uh, going to give us some updates on his investigations uh, in, in uh, the caves of Arizona and some different places, and uh, I hear he's got some really neat stuff to talk about. So uh, he'll be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I want to thank again. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully, I'll see you all tomorrow at 6:30. So I'm going to call it a night, and I hope you have a good rest of the weekend. Whatever's left of your weekend. See ya.